good to see each of you, and Merry Christmas Eve to all of you. If you would please look with me in Colossians chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 7 this morning together for our text. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your many blessings. Thank you for the privilege to gather here with this congregation. And Lord, as we pause these moments together around your word, I pray, Father, that you might provide us by the working of your spirit, discernment, and understanding. Lord, I do pray as well for every individual, every soul that's gathered here with us this day. We are aware that uh, there are needs that we're not even um, conscious of, even within our own lives, Lord. There are things that are necessary. And so we pray, Father, that your spirit might search our our very hearts and our lives, and Lord, that we would be uh, truly open before you, honest before you as we are. We thank you for the privilege to gather as we do this day, and Lord, for every soul that is able to be with us, we thank you. I do pray as well for those who are away, those who are visiting, those who are sick, those who are not able to meet and join with us this day. We do pray, Father, that you might minister grace to them also. Lord, as your will is being accomplished, may we be submissive vessels in your hands, Lord, that we would uh, reflect your glory and your grace to a world that's in, in desperate need, a dying world in spiritual darkness. Lord, as well, if there be those that are gathered with us that know not Christ, we do pray that your spirit might work in hearts and lives this very grace by which we've been redeemed. And Lord, may you draw souls to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for all those, uh, Father, uh, who have joined together this day around your word for fellowship and edification, and we pray that we truly might, in submission unto you, uh, be responsible and, and faithful stewards of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ among one another, but also in a world that, again, is just in spiritual darkness and death. And Lord, may you be glorified in all that is done, as your name is lifted up, as Christ is revealed from the scriptures. May we have hearts to receive the truth and to live therein. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. A couple of weeks ago, we began our study of chapter 3 of the book of Colossians, Paul's epistle to the church at Colossae. And I gave you, if you recall, somewhat of an overview of this chapter. And then last week, we began to truly delve into the chapter, looking at the first uh, three verses specifically of this third chapter of the book of Colossians. And during our last study, I provided you a summary of the two main points of emphasis within the first two chapters of Paul's exhortation to the Colossian believers. First, we saw in chapters 1 and 2 that Paul emphasized the preeminence of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, he says, And he, Jesus, is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he might have the preeminence. 
For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Then chapter 2, verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Let me remind you before we even move forward or move on and progress that the, again, an over overwhelming problem that was coming into the church at Colossae and, and, and to the early church at this time in general was that of, of Gnosticism and Gnosticism, again, denying the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, to put it simply. Um, also, uh, not seeing a need for Christ to have ever come in the flesh because they believed that you could uh, have an, a, a relationship with God or come to know God through some mystical means or mystical knowledge, which would totally eradicate the need for God manifesting his son in the flesh. But we know that the flesh is the problem, the, and it was through the flesh of Christ, the sinless flesh of Christ, his substitutionary sacrificial death, that we are redeemed because through his, his flesh, which Hebrews, the Hebrew writer again says, which is the, the veil. His flesh is truly the veil, the veil which is to say his flesh. So the flesh of Christ was the true veil that gave us access to God the Father and, of course, was rent at Calvary and then resurrected and by which we have life, which Paul begins this chapter in that very, in that very context of saying, if ye then be risen with Christ. And so he's dealing with this resurrected Christ and how the resurrection, of course, then influences and impacts and transforms our lives. And so Paul emphasizes well in Colossians, I didn't read this portion, but if you recall, he states in the first chapters also that Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. Again, emphasizing that truth of the need for there to be a manifestation in the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ for our redemption. Then the second thing Paul emphasized in chapters 1 and 2 is the believer's position as God has provided that for them in Jesus Christ. Chapters 1, 20, and 22, or chapter 1, 20, and 22 says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. There you find the emphasis again, Jesus coming in the flesh. And he goes on to say, To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Chapter 2.10, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Chapter 2.12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. So within chapter 3, now Paul is shifting gears somewhat, as he normally does in his epistles. He will lay down these doctrinal truths and foundational truths, and then he'll move to this practicality of that, how that affects us, or how we are to live and respond and, and, and uh, exist in this truth of the teaching of the Word of God concerning what God has done for us in Christ. And within chapter 3, Paul really explains for us the description of a genuine Christian life, including the exhortation to the Colossian believers to be intentional and to live purposefully as God has provided for them in Christ, and also this description of what that looks like. I previously pointed out that there are two divisions within the third chapter, verses 1 through 17, in which Paul provides the expected and appropriate response according to the position which God provided us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses 18 through 25, Paul, he explains the expected results within the relationships of those who are living in submission to the preeminence or lordship of Jesus Christ. And again, this is very akin to the book of Ephesians, where Paul, if you recall, in chapter 5, he begins to speak about the relationship of the husband and wife, the wife and the husband. And he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church. And then in chapter 6, he deals with children and parents, and parents and children. He deals with uh, 
masters and slaves and slaves and masters, or in our context, if we would understand, of course, employees, employers, employees, employees, employers, and he, he deals with these matters of how the relationship and position we have in Christ, chapters 1 through 3, how practically in chapters 4 through 6, that now transforms our lives and how that is to be lived out, the responsibility we have to live this out, but we have to understand the position that God's given us in order for that to be a reality in our lives. And so within chapter 3, Paul is providing this description and with these two divisions. First, of course, uh, the, the appropriate response is personally, individually, as believers in Jesus Christ, how being risen with Christ has transformed us and what the expected results is. When I say expected results, I, I dealt with this somewhat last week. When I say expected results, it's more than just some expectation as though, well, it should be this way, but it's not always this way. No, this is the required results, the demanded results. This is the evidence of a genuine follower of Christ, a genuine born-again believer. So this is, again, a description of the genuine Christian life is what Paul's providing us. Paul stated three expected results of the Christian's life, which are also exhortations for every believer. In other words, though this is the result of being a believer in Jesus Christ, it is also something which every believer must be intentional and, and purposely focused upon these realities lest he fail to live in the truth of the position that God has provided us in Christ. And so these three statements, expected results, Paul gives us. First is to seek first the kingdom of God in verse 1. Then he says, set your affection on things above, verse 2. And then third, mortify your members. So Paul stated, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. And the verb seek, it means to look for or to desire. And so he's saying here that we are to look for things which are above. We are to desire the things that come from above or those things which are above. And those who have been born again will emanate the evidence of a new life. A new birth produces a new life and a new life cannot exist apart from a new birth. And so that the evidence of that new life will be emanated from within the one and outwardly shown and displayed by the one who has received such a new life. When we are dead to self, and this is the point Paul is driving home here, if ye then be risen with Christ. But remember, to be risen with Christ, a resurrected life first requires that there be a crucified life or death. And so Paul said again in Galatians 2.20, you're familiar with the verse, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then Paul goes on to say again in verse 21, I do not frustrate or nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So Paul is saying, I do not add to righteousness, I do not my life is not something that cultivates righteousness, but rather the life of Christ in me is righteousness. And so that life is to be demonstrated and emanating from my existence here as a believer in Christ. And so he says, seek, look for, desire. And if we are dead to self, having been made alive in Christ, then our desires will be derived from the source of our life. Again, if a dead body, physically speaking, desires nothing because there's no presence of life within that body. And on Regenerate life will desire and hunger and seek after wicked things, even if they're not uh, wicked to the degree of comparison to another, may not even seem wicked, but even if it's nothing more than a life that is self-fulfilling and prideful, that in itself is wicked and holy and unrighteous. So the point is, a man who is unregenerate will seek after things 
such as the physical desires of his life would be attracted to those things. So those are the things he will set his affection or look to and seek and desire after. So when we are dead to self and risen with Christ, and it is Christ who is our life, as Paul says here in verse uh, in this uh, third chapter, and also in Galatians 2.20, obviously, if, if Christ is our life, then that means the desires that we have are sourced from the existence or are sourced from the very source from which our life exists. So Christ is our life, therefore... He is seated at the right hand of the, of the majesty on high. And so our desires are after him because he is our life. And so it's not our life anymore. That's the whole point. And we are dead and now risen with him. Then he says, if you be risen with Christ, set your affection on things above. Verse 2. The statement, set your affection, it means to think or to set one's mind on. And so not only are our desires to be a result of our life in Christ, but we are also, again, to be intentional concerning the things to which we set our minds or that which we think. Paul gives us that example in Philippians three thirteen and 14. But if you remember with me, he says in verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Having forsaken all other things, Paul says, and counting them but refuse, he says, I now press toward the mark. My, my focus is set, my mind is set on things which are above, on Christ who is the prize. Colossians 3.3, 3, Paul says, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. There it is again. If ye, if ye then be risen with Christ. Now when Paul says, ye are dead, that is all still contingent on this truth, foundational truth, if ye then be risen with Christ. So if you are risen with Christ, then your life is dead, and it is hid. You are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So this verse explains, verse 3, the power behind such an exhortation which Paul provided, we are dead to ourselves, alive unto Christ, and it is Christ who is our life, as verse 4 declares. Now, again, I remind you before we get into this morning's portion of the text that we must be aware, and it would be foolish to deny the fact that we live in a flesh, in, in, a, in a body that is still uh, sinful, and we are under the bondage of sin, we still have the presence of sin with which we must contend. Again, I remind you of Romans 6 and uh, 7 and 8. Uh, these three chapters are, are phenomenal concerning this truth. In Romans chapter 6, Paul explains so clearly that we are not under the sin, uh, we are not under sin, but under, under the law, but under grace, and that we have been freed from sin. He even begins by saying, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And he says that we are not bound to sin. We've been made free from sin. And so therefore, we are not under its bondage. But then in verse, chapter 7, it, it's like, again, a total shifting of gears. Paul then begins to talk about how I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. And there's this constant struggle that's taking place and this, this raging war that's taking place within. But, and he even says near the end, he says, Who shall deliver me, O wretched man that I am? Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And so Paul is saying, I am constantly fighting the struggle of the sin. The things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And he's saying this is a constant battle and struggle, which that relates as well to what Paul teaches us in Galatians chapter 5, when he speaks about the spirit lusteth against the, the flesh, lusteth against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. They are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. And so he's saying there's this constant battle. By the way, again, in Galatians 5, I believe it's 17 that I just quoted, you'll find that Paul makes a statement, the flesh lusteth against the spirit. And, and that term, lusteth, that verb that's used there, it literally means that, that the flesh is desiring to claim ownership to something to which it has no right. 
And so the flesh is wanting to control that sinful fleshly nature still wants to rise up and take control of something to which it has no right at all to make claim on. For instance, Paul says as well, um, uh, know you not that you're uh, bought with a price, therefore glorify, you're not your own, you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in both your body and spirit, which are God's. So we are to glorify God in both body, that's this flesh we live in, and spirit. And the flesh lusteth, that's not talking about your body, that's talking about that sinful flesh that still resides, that, that, that residue of sinful flesh that's still within you, that that desires to take control over your body, to claim right on your body to which it has no rightful claim because you've been bought with a price. And you are to glorify God in both body and spirit because it all belongs to him. And so that's what, what is being stated here. And when Paul says, you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God, we are alive in Christ, dead to self, but that doesn't mean there's not a sinful nature. Then in chapter 8 of Romans, Paul says this. He begins the chapter, chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And again, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit is not prescriptive, but descriptive. It's saying these are those who are in Christ. They do not walk after the flesh, but they walk after the Spirit. doesn't mean they don't sin, but they're not living lives after sin and under the bondage of sin. And he, so here's what Paul says in Romans 6, 7, and 8. He says, you've been freed from the power and bondage of sin. However, you must still contend with the presence of sin. But yet God has delivered you fully from the judgment and wrath and penalty of sin in chapter 8. And so we see that sin is still present. And that's what I was driving home to. Sin is still present, as Paul says in Romans 7. But we're not under its power, nor are we under its condemnation. But if we're not under its condemnation, it's because we've been delivered from its power. And though we contend with its present, chapter, its presence, chapter 7, we will not live controlled by such sin. And that's what Paul is saying in those passages. So, it is interesting, I believe, as we read again our text this morning, as we've read, that we find ourselves at this point in our study during this time of year. Here we are uh, coming up on the new year. Christmas is tomorrow. And while many today will focus on the manifestation of Jesus in the flesh, Jesus being manifested in the flesh through the incarnation, which is obviously an, a, an important truth of Scripture and Christ coming in, in the flesh for the sake of dying for our sins, redeeming us unto God, reconciling us to God. While many will focus on the manifestation of Jesus in the flesh as a babe in a manger, our text draws our attention to the risen Jesus, who was not only manifested in the flesh for our redemption, but the emphasis Paul is making here is that he manifests his resurrected life in all of those who've been redeemed. So we speak about the manifestation of Christ in the flesh, which is the incarnation, but then we must also consider the fact that Christ is risen, and we are risen with him, and his spirit indwells us, that Jesus might continue to be manifested in this world through lives that have been redeemed by God the Father unto himself. The resurrected life of Christ within the life of the believer can no more be hidden than the body of Christ could be holden in the grave by death. The resurrected Jesus will transform all those in whom his resurrected life and power is present. You know this verse, I've referenced it many times already through this study, but 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul wrote, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And then the next verse, verse 18, begins by stating, And all things are of God. 
They're new, but they're not just new. They are now of God. Again, reminding us that our desires are sourced from the source of our life. In other words, our desires are from God because now all things are new and all things are of God. So the definition of the Christian life, I know this is going to upset so many folks, maybe not here, hopefully, but so many folks who possibly would hear this, the definition of the Christian life is not left for us to decide or determine. But it's already defined by God in the Scriptures. What's happened today is many want to redefine what the Christian life is rather than submitting to the truth of the definition already provided. The positional truth of our death and resurrection with Jesus Christ requires, which is to say it demands, that we practically live accordingly. As Paul stated in chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 6, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. As you've received him, so continue in him. This is the expected results. This is the required results or the evidence which will be manifested in the life of the genuine believer. So this morning we will continue, for the moments we have left, our examination of evidence and responsibility of every genuine believer in Christ or what one might refer to as the Christian life. What is the evidence of that Christian life? What is the, what is the responsibility of the believer concerning the Christian life? Paul continued, if ye then be risen with Christ, we saw where he said, seek things which are above, seek first things that are above, second, set your affection on things which are above, but now he says in verses 4 and 5, if ye then be risen with Christ, mortify your members. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Verse 5, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul lays the foundation for his exhortation to mortify your members by reminding the Colossian believers that their life was in Christ and that one day he would return to receive us into his glory. Now, this not only means that we will be with him in glory or in a place or in heaven, though that is true, but it also is saying that we will be made partakers with him in his glory. You know, people talk about glory, and so many times the word is used, the noun is used, and the only thought they have is another term for heaven. And they think of, oh, well, glory means heaven, and heaven means glory. Well, if you're understanding the truth, then yes, that could maybe be the case. But often I think people look at heaven so subjectively, even believers, that they're missing the point of being able to synonymously use the word glory with heaven. Because most people, if you are honest, you know many, I'm sure, who've made statements or comments along the lines of heaven. And, and in most cases, it seems as though even the average, let's say, professing believer views heaven as something that's going to be what they think heaven should be or what they want heaven to be. So it's what's heaven to me. Well, the fact of the matter is what makes heaven what it is is the very glory of God in his presence. And so when he says that we, he will receive us in his glory or into his glory, it's not only stating, of course, that we will be with the Lord in heaven, but we also are made to be partakers with him in his glory. And Paul stated this in his epistle to the Philippians. In Philippians 3, 20 and 21, he said, for our conversation is in heaven. By the way, that's another way of saying our conversation is from above or in, it's above, which he's dealing with in Colossians. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body 
that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is even able to, to subdue all things unto himself. Do you see what Paul just said? Paul just said, he will change our vile body. What is Paul dealing with in Colossians 3? He's talking about the vileness of the body and the flesh and the wicked nature of man. But he says he's going to change the vile body into the likeness of his glorious body. That is partaking in his glory in that respect. And so he says also, John, in 1 John 3, John declared that everyone who has this confidence that Christ will return and change this corruptible to incorruptible purifies himself in the purity of Christ. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Did you hear what he just said? When he shall appear, we shall be like him. Not mean we become God by any means, obviously, but we will have a glorified body as he has a glorified body. We are going to share and partake in his glory in that respect. And every man that hath this hope, every man that hath this confidence in himself or in him, purify themselves even as he is pure. Again, not saying we frustrate the grace of God as though we are achieving some righteousness. No, but we understand the position God has given us. We understand the hope that it, confidence that is before us. And therefore, we live our lives submissively in the resurrected power of Christ who dwells within us. Paul further explained, 2 Corinthians 7.1, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So again, this is the believer's responsibility. We recognize God has made us holy, and now we are to live out that truth of holiness, recognizing this position God has provided us. Now, the verb mortify, as we read in Verse 5, mortify therefore your members, as Paul writes here in Colossians chapter 3. The, word, the verb mortify means put to death. And Paul's use of the noun members refers to the members of your body. Richard Mulek commented, The term members occurs more in the Pauline epistles than in the rest of the New Testament. The rabbis taught that there were 248 members of a person's body which were related to the 248 laws of the Torah. The takeaway of Melix, or from Melik's statement is simply that every member must be brought under submission to God's righteousness as he had made, has made provision for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence John's statement in 1 John 3, 3, we read a moment ago, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. The only way we are purifying ourselves is submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his truth, to his word, and allowing the life of Christ to truly, the resurrected life to be lived in and through us. The question then remains, what is it that must be put to death? So mortify the members, mortify every part of your being. We are dead. Remember, for you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So you are dead. So mortify, put to death. We're already dead positionally. You are crucified with Christ. That is positional. It's done. We are buried with him in death, raised with him in resurrection. We are dead, positionally speaking. But now Paul is saying, as you've received, therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk ye in him, that you are dead, so put to death. Do not resurrect, in other words, but put to death that which still wants to be resurrected. 
Verse 5, mortify therefore, put to death your members which are upon the earth. Then he mentions these sins, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put to death fornication. Fornication is sexual immorality. Uncleanness is impurity. Inordinate affection is lustful passion. Evil concupiscence is desire and lust. Covetousness is greediness, of which Paul identifies as well as idolatry. The flesh with all its sinful desires, all of its sinful actions, and idolatry has been crucified with Christ. We are responsible to ensure that it remains dead and buried with him. In other words, the problem lies herein. Rather than allowing the resurrected life of Christ to be lived through us, we like to resurrect our own life and bring to the front things that do not belong and should not even exist, but yet because of the sinful fleshly nature we have, are still present. And it's interesting as well, the the types of sins that Paul lists here in verse 5, of course, they are that of lustful passions, impurity, sexual immorality, desires, lust, and greediness. Again, idolatry, if you will, context. So Paul explained in his epistle to the churches of Galatia, In chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, he says, And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So Paul here explains that, we again, we are crucified. And those that are Christ's have crucified the flesh and the affections thereof. Listen, you say, okay, so you're saying that if someone's in Christ, then they... They don't have these struggles. No, of course not. Paul himself would be contradicting himself if that's what he were saying. He's not saying there's no temptation in life. He's not saying that a believer cannot commit sin or does not commit sin or will not commit sin. But what he is saying is those who are truly following after Christ are not living after the desires and and lustful affections of the flesh, but rather they are living, seeking those things which are above, desiring and setting our minds upon those things which are above and are constantly putting to death within our lives that sinful nature that wants to rise, resurrect within us, putting that to death, making sure that it is identified in the death of Christ, buried with him. Just as Paul explained to the Colossian believers that the basis upon which the command to seek things above and set affection on things above was their life in Christ, now Paul explains the reason he calls for these believers to put to death their members. Now, again, he's not saying if you don't do this, this is what will happen. But if this is not true, if ye then be risen with Christ, then you're dead. Mortify, therefore, put to death those members and these sins. But look at what he says in verses 6 and 7 now of our text. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. That is an important statement Paul makes at the end. When ye lived in them. Again, if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists a whole category of sinful people. And he goes through that. In fact, let's just turn there for a moment. This is kind of important to see, I think, in light of Paul's statement here in Colossians as well. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Now notice what he says, the unrighteous. He doesn't say someone who does unrighteously or commits unrighteousness. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators. Again, that's not saying those who commit 
fornication, but fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, notice what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. You were this, but then he says, notice as well, but ye are sanctified. That's positional. You're sanctified. Then he goes on to say, but ye are justified. Again, positional. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So notice what Paul says here. He doesn't say, if you commit fornication, oh, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's not an excuse for that sin. But he's saying, these people are people who are identified by such sins because they live in these sins. This is who they are. And that's what Paul says as well here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 7. In the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. So what is the source of your life? Again, if ye then be risen with Christ, you are dead. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Therefore, mortified, put to death the members. The sinful flesh is still present. Put to death that flesh. Recognize it, acknowledge it, and put it to death. How do you do that? By living in the resurrection power, resurrected power of Christ. Christ's life within you. Such a life of sin is the result of a life that's never been delivered from such sin. One who's been delivered from the power of sin cannot just live a life of sin. They're not capable of it as a believer. God will chasten, rebuke. He will even take one home, but one will not just live a lifestyle of sin as a believer in Jesus Christ. Let me prove it to you. So many verses I've already read to you. If any man be in Christ, he should be a new creature. He should act like a new No, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Again, not saying there's no sinful desires that are still present. Not saying there's no temptation to sin. Not saying that we do not commit sin. And not even, in fact, I will go as far as to say this. And this is a, a misconception, I believe, and deceit that many believers have fallen into as though believers aren't, are not capable of certain sins. No, you are capable of all sin. And I am capable of any and all sin. I am capable of that. But I am not capable of living in that sin. This is God's work. It's not dependent upon us. But as believers, we are to be on guard and watch and protect and put to death these members that are present. Those who live in such manner as described in verse 5 have never been crucified with Christ, are not buried with Him, and therefore are not risen with Him, and their lives are not hid with Him in God. As we discovered last week, Paul further explains, and we're not going to deal with this this morning, but I do want to just briefly mention it again, and we'll, Lord willing, delve more into this in the future. But Paul further explains how one mortifies or puts to death their members in the following verses by making two statements, really. First of all, in verses 8 and 9, he says, put off. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Then he says, put on, verses 10, 12, and 14. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, verse 14. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. As I emphasized last week, it is important that we recognize the commands that are given to both put off and put on, 
are based on the position these Colossian believers had are, that they'd already put off the old man and had put on the new man. So now because you've put off the old man, put on the new man, which is redemption, risen with Christ, he says now put off those old behaviors. Put them off. Put them to death. Mortify your members. This truth is significant because everything God's commanded us to do as followers of Christ or not to do is always based on the position he's already provided for us in Jesus Christ. God's never telling us to do something for which he's not already provided us that position. In other words, God's not saying, hey, I want you, I want you to become a, a more holy. I want you to become uh, more righteous. I want you to become more justified. I want you to become more redeemed. No, we are holy. We are righteous. We are justified. We are sanctified. This is positional. But now the Lord calls us to live out the truth of that position. Again, religion says this, try to achieve these things. So we do this or don't do this in order to try to achieve this. Redemption does not say do this to achieve this. It says God's already done it, now live out the truth of this. Maybe lived out of your life. Jesus was manifested in the flesh by his birth that his life might be manifested in us and through us by his death and his resurrection. If ye then be risen with Christ, mortify, put to death the flesh. Keep the old man buried and live in the new man as one who's been resurrected with the Lord Jesus. Ye then be risen with Christ. Seek first things which are above. If ye then be risen with Christ, set your affection on things above. If ye then be risen with Christ, mortify, put to death your members. So Paul really in essence, is describing here a genuine Christ-like life. One who's genuinely born again. And he's explaining to us, the, he's exhorting us and also describing for us what a, a, a genuine Christian life, how it looks, but also the responsibility we have to continue therein. As ye therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, we do thank you.